Well, good morning and good to see your faces and your presence with us. Uh, we are going to continue in a, ser- a sermon series for this summer that we started last week um, that we've entitled What God Wants, Pleasing God by Pursuing His Will. So we're going to be looking at various texts this summer that have to do with pleasing God, what it means, how to do it. And um, so that's where, we're, that's where we're headed again this morning. Um, I gave us a definition last week of what pleasing God is. And I just want to reread that definition and remind us of what I mean by pleasing God. Pleasing God is bringing God delight by being and doing what he desires. Bringing God delight by being and doing what he desires. And the implication of that definition is that in Christ, as disciples and followers of Jesus, we can please him. That is... We can, we can please him as Christians. We can, and the implication, I think, of being able to please him is also being able to displease him. Now, that's, there is some misunderstandings surrounding the topic of pleasing God. Um, and I think it's, it's rooted sometimes in a, in a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches about God's love. And God's love is not a one-dimensional, static reality in Scripture. It's a, it's a vibrant, multi-dimensional thing. In his excellent book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, D.A. Carson gives five different ways that the Bible speaks about God's love. And on the front end of this sermon, I just want to take an, take an example, uh, or take some time to give these five examples that, that Dr. Carson lays out and then apply it briefly, and then we're going to get into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I think you'll see why we're spending some time on, time on the front end talking about this. Because it has implications for how we think about pleasing God. So five distinguishable ways the Bible speaks of the love of God. Here's the first one. The Bible speaks of God's love as the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. In other words, within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Bible speaks of the Trinity oftentimes as a community of love. Twice we are told in John chapter 3, verse 35, and John chapter 5, verse 20, that the Father loves the Son. And so we, we, we can often skip over that when we think about the love of God and just talk about God's love for us, but we need to start and emphasize what the Bible itself starts and emphasizes, namely God's love for himself namely the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and the Spirit's love for both the Father and the Son, and the Father and Son's love for the Spirit. Secondly, the Bible speaks of the love of God as God's providential love over all that he has made. We can legitimately say, according to Scripture, that God loves everyone and everything that he has made. Psalm 145 speaks of God's loving creatorship of all people and all things. Matthew chapter 5 reminds us that God sends rain on the just and on the unjust because he is the loving creator of all. Third, God's love can be spoken of as God's salvific stance toward his fallen world. This is what we see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's his saving disposition toward the world. We see this also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, where we read that Jesus Christ is our propitiation and advocate before the Father, and not for us only, but also for the whole world. So we can speak of God's love within himself. We can speak of God's 
love for all that he has made, and we can speak of God's love as his desire that all people would come to know Christ. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Fourthly, we can speak of God's love as his particular, effective, selecting, and saving love toward his elect. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you, talking about the people of Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out of the mighty, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh the king. He says again in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. So why did God choose them? Because he loved them. He loved them in a peculiar, special way. Similarly, the New Testament speaks that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. Fifthly and finally, and this is the one that immediately pertains to this series and pleasing God and thinking through that. The fifth way that the Bible talks about God's love is, is that sometimes his love is said to be directed toward his own people in a provisional or conditional way that is conditioned on our obedience. For instance, think about Jude chapter 1. Well, Jude only has one chapter, so Jude 21 Keep yourselves in God's love, leaving the unmistakable impression that someone might not keep themselves in the love of God. Clearly, this is not referring to God's love for all mankind, and it's pretty difficult to escape that, nor is this God's yearning love that he would, that he would desire to save a sinner, nor is it his eternal elective love. If words mean anything, one does not, as we shall see, walk away from that love either. But Jude is not the only one who talks like this. Jesus talks like this in John chapter 15, verse 9, when he says, If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as the Father obey, or just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Think about Psalm 103. God will not always accuse, always, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Now, three quick observations based upon those five distinctions that we can think of regarding God's love. Here's what Carson says in his book. Again, I commend to you the, the small book, Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, if you want to dive into this more. But he says, first of all, it's easy to see what will happen if any one of these five biblical ways of talking about the love of God is absolutized and made exclusive or made the controlling grid by which the other ways of talking about God are relativized. In other words, we need to be careful of, ma of making sure that we, we maintain this multidimensional, holistic view of God's love and not make one trump the others. He says, if we begin 
with the love that God has for himself and use that as a model for all of God's loving relationships, then we'll fail to observe the distinctions that need to be maintained. If the love of God is nothing more than his loving ordering and care for everything, then we might not be far from thinking of God as some sort of kind, mysterious force. But if the love of God is exclusively portrayed as an inviting, yearning, sinner-seeking, lovesick passion, he says, then we may just strengthen the hands of semi-Pelagians and those more interested in God's inner emotional life than in his justice and glory, but the cost will be massive. He says, if the love of God refers exclusively to his love for the elect, then it's easy to drift toward a simple and absolute bifurcation. God loves the elect, God hates the reprobate. If the love of God, he says, is construed entirely within the kind of discourse that ties God's love to our obedience, keep yourselves in the love of God, the dangers threatening us change once again. True, in a church characterized more by personal preference and disobedience than godly fear of the Lord, such passages surely have something to say to us. But divorced from complementary biblical statements about the love of God, such texts might drive us backward, thinking that we have to earn God's love by endlessly fretting about whether or not we've been good enough to enjoy his love, to be free from all sin from which the cross alone may free us. So in short, we need all that Scripture says on this subject or the doctrinal and pastoral ramifications will prove disastrous. Two others very quickly. He says, we must not view these ways of talking about the love of God as independent, compartmentalized loves of God. It will not help to think, to begin talking too often about God's love for everything or his special love for his people or his Trinitarian love for himself and so forth as if each were hermetically sealed off from the other. Nor can we allow any of these ways of talking about the love of God to be diminished by the others. His wisdom has thought it best to provide us with various ways in his word of talking about his love if we are to think rightly about him and we must hold these truths together and learn to integrate them in proper biblical proportion and balance. And then finally, and then we're going to get into the text, he says, number three application, within the framework established so far, we may well ask ourselves how many certain evangelical cliches stand up. Number one, God's love is unconditional. Doubtless, that is true in the fourth sense when we speak about God's elective love for his people. But it is certainly not true in the fifth sense. God disciplines his children means that he may turn upon us with the divine equivalent of, a, of anger of a parent or a wayward, for a wayward teenager. Indeed, to incite the cliche, God's love is unconditional, to a Christian who is drifting towards sin may convey the wrong impression and do a lot of damage. Such Christians need to be told that they will remain in God's love only if they do what he says. Obviously, then, it is pastorally important to know what passages and themes to apply to which people at any given time. Second cliche, God loves everyone in exactly the same way. That is certainly true in passages belonging to the second category, namely God's providential love over all that he has made in the domain of providence and creation. After all, God sends his sunshine and his rain upon the just and the unjust alike, but it's certainly not true in passages belonging to the fourth category, the domain of election. What the Bible says about the love of God is more complex and nuanced than what we can put on a slogan or a bumper sticker. To sum it up, Christian faithfulness entails our responsibility to grow in our grasp of what it means to confess that God is love. So I hope that's somewhat helpful in thinking through this multidimensionality of God's love. They all cohere together. 
Now, this particular sermon series is dealing with that fifth aspect, that aspect of obedience to God and being able to please Him and thereby bring Him greater pleasure toward us as His people. While He loves us as His people in His elective and unconditional sense, choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world, saving us through the work of Christ, justifying us by grace alone through faith alone, adopting us into his family on the basis of what Christ has done, giving us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. All that's true. God loves us as his people, but we can be more or less well-pleasing to him. And the goal of this sermon is to strive to be more and more pleasing to our God in heaven who has saved us unconditionally by his grace. So, with those introductory remarks out of the way, I just want to underscore again that pleasing God is not just a peripheral biblical idea. It's a central New Testament ethic. It is central to the way Jesus thought about his life. It's central to the way Paul thought about his ministry. So let me just give you a couple of verses on that reality. First of all, pleasing God summarized Jesus' entire life. We read right at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, after he's been baptized by John, a voice from heaven, the Father's voice, comes out and says what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. <laughs> he makes me smile. He brings joy to my heart. And this is all over the Gospels, Matthew 12, 18, 17, 5, Mark 1, 1, Mark 1 11, Luke 3, 22, 2 Peter 1, 17. John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus' own word, own word says, And he, talking about the Father who sent me, is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus found favor in God's sight through his obedience. Remember Luke chapter 2, where Jesus is the young 12-year-old boy in the temple listening to the older teachers, and it says, Luke records, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. Wait. How can Jesus grow in favor with God? He's God the Son because he's walking in obedience. He's doing everything that the Father asked him to do. And therefore, he's growing in favor with God. The same can be true of us, brothers and sisters, in a dynamic, real way. You grow in God's favor. Now, is God's favor on you as God's child in Christ? Yes, but you can grow in it. Also, pleasing God was the goal of Paul's ministry. We see that right here in verse 9 of our text this morning. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, so whether we are at home or away, and he's saying this about himself, and really as a statement for all Christians. He's including himself in this we, but really he says this should be the attitude that we all have. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. That's my goal this morning in this sermon is to underscore that reality and pray that God would enable us to adopt it almost as the appropriate slogan over all of our lives. We make it our aim to please Him. Be a great marker on your tombstone. They made it their aim to please God. I, I, I joke with my own family that, that on my tombstone, it's just, I just said, just put, He tried, y'all. <laughs> that, that's, that's all I want. But really, you know, a more, a more biblical idea would be he made it his aim to please God. And that's what we should all strive for. All right, so what I want to do this morning in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, is look specifically at five different motivations that Paul gives in these, in these first 10 verses 
for why we should make it our aim to please God. All right? So there's five different motivations given here for why we should please God. Why does Paul make it his aim to please God? He gives five explanations here in this passage. So let's look at them one at a time. Number one, the reality of dying. The reality of dying. Look at verse one. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home... Now, I'm going to argue in a moment he's referring to his physical body. That's what he means by tent. It's a temporary dwelling place, our earthly body. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. Okay, so before we get to the explanation of what that verse means, just think, okay, this earthly tent that we're living in, this this earthly home, as he calls it, or this tent that we're dwelling in is going to be destroyed. It's, It's going away. We already feel it year after year after year. It's, we are, as 2 Corinthians 4, the previous passage reminds us, look, if you just look back uh, two verses, verse 16, well, yeah, about three, three verses. For we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So remember, he's thinking about a decaying body here. He's thinking about dying. And he says in verse 1, we know that if this tent, our earthly home, is destroyed. So... I think he's talking about our physical body here. I don't think he's talking about the whole earth as being our earthly home and the whole earth being destroyed. I think he has a specific focus on our earthly body. The building or house that's in verse 1 that he's describing is, stands in parallel with the, the house that's mentioned earlier in the verse or the tent that's mentioned earlier in the verse. So I think since he says that we have a building from God, refers to our eternal, resurrection, glorified body, The tent that he's referring to is our physical, earthly body. This is also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 through 39. I don't have the time to turn you there, but there Paul contrasts our perishable body, which is the one we're living in now, with the imperishable body of a glorified, resurrected body that God is going to give us um, upon the return of Christ. So the reality of dying, that's the first reason he gives. Hey, we're going to die We know our earthly tent is going to be destroyed. With that reality that we have a limited amount of time here, we're going to die, we make it our aim aim to please him. That's That's his first statement. Then number two, the prospect of glorification. The prospect of glorification. Look at look again at at verse one. He says, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. There's our glorified body. For in this tent, that's our earthly body, we groan. See Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23 for more on that. For in this tent we groan, longing, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So this is the reality, right? We we as Christians, we groan in this earthly body, longing to put on our heavenly body, as our brother John said in in his comments. You know, this week has reminded him more about longing for heaven and desiring heaven. Well, that's, that's what Paul's talking about here. In this tent, we're groaning, we're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Then he says in verse 3, If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. I'll get back to that in a second. For while we are still in this tent, that again is our earthly body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, let's talk about this. All right, this, this statement, verse 3, 
where Paul says that so that we may not be found naked, he basically unpacks what he means by that in verse 4. He says in the middle of verse 4 that we would, that we would be, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would, that would be naked, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what in the world is Paul talking about here? Part of the challenge is he's mixing metaphors. He's mixing building metaphors and clothing metaphors. And, you know, we have to, he's, he's kind of weaving all that together. He's talking about an eternal building and a tent. And then he's talking about this, this, strong, this clothed, fully clothed person and a naked person. So, he, again, he's mixing metaphors, but he, he's getting at the exact same idea with both of them. In these verses, Paul speaks of his desire to be alive when Christ returns. For then he would not have to die physically and experience the separation of body and soul. That condition is what he refers to as being naked or unclothed. So what, what, he, what he's desiring is to be... He's saying, I am living right now on the edge of eternity. I am longing for Christ to return. I don't want to have to go through physical death because that would result in the separation of my body from my soul. I would rather that Christ return and swallow my life up in his so that my body and soul are glorified right in that moment. And this is not the only time Paul talks this way. He talks this way in Philippians chapter 1. Remember when he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I depart to be with Christ, for that's far better. Yet I'm struggling here because I would rather continue on with you so that, but if that will mean fruitful labor for me, but if it's not going to be fruitful labor, then I want to just go on to be with the Lord. So the idea here is that Paul is desiring to be swallowed up by the Lord in glorification. It's, he has this idea of putting on an outward garment. It's like he's wearing a shirt and pants and he wants to put a coat on a larger coat that would cover him even more. And that's the way he envisions our glorified body. So the heavenly body, or the glorified body, the resurrection body, is like an outward overcoat that's being put over the earthly body with which the apostle is, as it were, presently wearing. And in this way, the heavenly glorified body not only covers, but absorbs and transforms the earthly one. Look again at the end of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians where he says this light, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what Paul wants. <laughs> he wants right, right into that. He wants to go right into experiencing that eternal weight of glory. So the groaning that he pictures here, or that he states, this, he says being burdened and I'm groaning, it's not because of doubt or fear. It's longing its strong desire as a woman who has a prospect of giving childbirth. It's, that, it's an excitement. It's an excitement that's being driven by a longing to be with Christ and to not have to go through the, the, the rending of soul and body. Listen, that, that should be what we desire. Look, if the Lord gives us options, if you were to say, okay, Brother, sister in Christ, I give you the three options. One, you stay right here as it is. I'll be with you, but you can stay. Second, you die right now. I'm not coming back yet, but you die right now, and I'll take your soul. Your body will go into the ground. Or I'm coming back right now, and I'm going to swallow it all up in life. Well, hopefully as a Christian, you say three, 
Three, right now. Right now. Right now. That's the Christian response. Because Paul, when he's proposed with that option in Philippians 1, he says, well, I'm torn because I would rather not have to die if it's going to mean fruitful labor, but he would also rather not die if Christ is going to come back in his lifetime. (laughs) And so he's not sure of when that's going to happen, but he's living right on the edge desiring for Christ to return. So if he remains alive then, until Christ returns, he's going to be found by the Lord clothed with a body, that is the present earthly one, and not in a disembodied state. And to be without a body, he says, is to be naked. Now that's a great nakedness. (laughs) You're with the Lord. But clearly, Paul envisaged a state of disembodiment between physical death and the resurrection that he calls unclothed. So here's Paul's perspective, just to summarize these verses. Paul's perspective on life and death may therefore be put this way. It is good to remain alive on this earth if we're serving Christ. That's Paul's argument in Philippians 1, 21, 22, 24, and 26. (laughs) If I'm going to live here, it's to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. To live for him, that's the only reason I'm here. And everyone in this room, that's the only reason you're breathing. It's the only reason we're breathing. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's it. That's why we're here. Whether we're changing diapers, making dinner, eating dinner, putting kids to bed, spending time with our spouse, spending time with extended family, going to our job, working, doing things diligently, we're here to glorify God. That's why we're breathing And we're here to serve Christ. But on the other hand, it's better to die physically and enter into the presence of Christ. However, it's by far and away best to be alive when Christ returns, for then we avoid death altogether and we're immediately joined with the Lord in our resurrection and glorified bodies. Here's what John Calvin says in his Institutes, commenting on this verse. Let us consider this settled that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. (laughs) See, this stuff has got to be deep in our DNA and bones, brothers and sisters, if we're going to aim to please God. Eternity has got to occupy our thinking far more frequently than it does. Far more frequently. We We have to be... Going to the house of mourning frequently, learning the lessons we need to learn there. We need to be remembering our days are numbered. We need to remember we're inching toward death. Not in some sort of morbid, crazy, introspective way, but just a real real way. We need to follow the Twitter, Twitter account, you will die someday. That's all they tweet every day. There's a grim reaper there, and it says, you'll die someday. And then the next day, you will die someday. The next day, you will die someday. Now, that's morbid, but it's a, it's a true reminder. Every day, pops up in my Twitter feed. You're going to die someday. But that's, that's Paul, Paul remembering that and relying on that. But at the same time, we desire Christ to return. And we desire to be swallowed up in his return to be glorified with him. Okay, so those, those are the first two. Reality of dying and the prospect of glorification. Number three, the guarantee of arrival. The guarantee of arrival. Look at verse 5. Paul says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
So we're always of good courage. See, I, I love that. How, Paul says, why am I able in the face of a breaking down body and a, and a, a society that's you know, undergoing all kinds of turmoil and churches that are in difficulty like the Corinthians were? And How am I able to keep pressing on and keep hoping? He says, God's given me his Holy Spirit. And if, he, if he's given me his Holy Spirit, I'm getting everything else. <laughs> See, that's the way he thinks. The Spirit's been given to us as a down payment, as Ephesians says, as a guarantee. This is a guarantee of a new body. Spirit's living in you now. You got a new body coming. You got a new body coming. And so that's, that's why he's always of good courage. He says, look, I'm of good courage because God's made a promise to me. He's put a down payment on my resurrection. He's put a down payment on my glorification in this life. And we have it. Namely, the Holy Spirit in our lives, living within us. He is our down payment of our eternal dwelling. He is our down payment on the house in the heavens. And it's a big down payment. We don't have any PMI. Okay? We have absolute certainty this mortgage is going to be paid off and I'm going to get it. So that's the, that's the guarantee. He's, the, the Spirit's co-signed for our eternal resurrection body, in other words. And if the Spirit's co-signed for you, that's all the Father needs, right? <laughs> He's not saying, hey, uh, I need you to verify you know, that this is, loan's going to be trustworthy. And, and Oh, you have the Spirit co-signed? Okay. <laughs> so that, that's the idea. So brothers and sisters, this is great encouragement for us. It's not, we don't have to waffle through life like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be there. I wonder if I'm going to... If you have the Spirit, you're going to be there. If you have the Spirit, you're going to be there. And so he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so we're always of good courage. He says this again in verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. So again, he just, he just pours it on here with encouragement, saying, don't be discouraged. Take encouragement. Don't be afraid of this reality. Be longing for this reality, because the Spirit has given you his down payment or God has given you his down payment in the person of the Spirit. Kent Hughes, commenting on this verse, says, For this, From this it becomes apparent that the down payment of the Spirit, what he calls the earnest of the Spirit, that's an old way of speaking of down payment, the earnest of the Spirit is not a mere static deposit, but the active, vivifying, that is enlivening, operation of the Holy Spirit within the believer, assuring him or her that the same principle of power which affected the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead is also present and at work within him or her, preparing his or her mortal body for the consummation of his redemption and the glorification of his body. <laughs> I know that's a lot, but wow. The Holy Spirit is given assurance, assurance to us that the resurrection body is coming because guess who raised Jesus from the dead? The Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God raised Jesus' earthly tent to a glorified body, then the Spirit who is dwelling within us will do the same. So that's the third motivation, is the guarantee. See, guarantees, when you have a guarantee, isn't it so much easier to just breathe? It should, I mean, this pleasing God thing is not meant to be a burden. Oh, I've got to worry when I'm pleasing. I've got enough stuff on my to-do list. It's meant to be freeing and liberating. no. We have a guarantee. We're not laboring in vain. When you make it your aim to please God, it's not a waste of time. That's what Paul's trying to underscore and, motiv and motivate us with. Number four, the preference of heaven. The preference of heaven. 
Notice how he talks here in, at the end of verse 6. We're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Now, he obviously means physically, not spiritually, right? Because we, if we're in Christ, he's near, near to us now. And we're not away from him in that sense. But in a physical sense, we are, right? We're not physically in his immediate presence. Now, we have a spiritual presence here with us. He goes with us. But Paul says here, it's almost like it's sad. We're at home in the body, but we're, kind of, you know, we're away from the Lord. He says it again in verse 8. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. See, that's, that's the preference. Look, I'd rather be... Okay, so again, he's, he's underscoring his thing here. He said, like, look, I'm here. I'd really, really like it. The best of all options is if Christ would come back and swallow me up. But in the meantime, I'd still rather go be with him, even if it means the separation of my soul from my body for a period of time. So he's, he's pressing here again, I'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. Again, that's Philippians chapter 1. He's just saying the same kind of stuff he told the church at Philippi to the Corinthians here. So that's the preference for heaven. Do you prefer heaven? Have a preference for heaven over everything? I hope so. I hope so. I trust so. Number five. Fifth and final motivation is the inevitability of judgment. The inevitability of judgment. He says in verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Four. Now here's the ultimate reason he gives, right? That four is a, is a purpose clause. He's saying, four, here's the reason that we make it our aim to please him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's the ultimate reason he gives. So he says, my ambition, our ambition, is to please Christ, and the motive is judgment by Christ. So here are the characteristics of this judgment. First of all, notice its inevitability. We must. We must. Court date's been set. And no backing out. He, he won't have to issue a warrant to get you to appear. We must all. And then he said the universality. We must all. We must all. All. There's the universality of it. Every single person. But notice the individuality of it. We must all appear before the judgment of Christ so that each one may receive. So each one is emphasized here. Notice, notice the mode. We must all appear. Appear. We don't simply show up. But the appearance is that we will be laid bare. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse... Five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I'll just say this now, um, but I'm going to talk about it more, Lord willing, in our Revelation series as we get into judgment and think through things like that. But as a Christian, the judgment should not make you something that paralyzes you with fear. Paul even says right here in 1 Corinthians 5 that the purpose of judgment is to receive com commendation from the Lord. 
Okay, it's, I don't want you to think that all your sins as a believer are going to be marshaled out for all eternity to see, all, all people to see. No, you don't, you don't need to fear that. Okay? When Christ says, I've removed them as far as the east is from the west, and they're buried in the depths of the sea, he doesn't go fishing on judgment day. Okay? So we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, as, as we get into Revelation, talk more about judgment. But it is a motivator. Because don't you want to... I mean, don't you want his smile to be even bigger? That's the idea. Is when I get there, I want to, if I can, I want to hear, good job, servant. But I really would like to hear, well done, servant. But I really, really want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? So it's just the idea of, I, I just... You know you're going to receive his commendation as a believer, but I strive and I desire to be as pleasing to him as I can so that in the judgment, I give the judge the biggest smile. And then we notice the standard, the standard here. The judge is Christ, which is... That's, doesn't that make things a little more peaceful? <laughs> who are you standing before? Your Savior? <laughs> The one who left all to shed his blood for your body and soul and pay for your sin? Don't you think he knows you? Right? So it's, it's Christ who is the judge, who is standing there. So our Savior is the one occupying the judgment seat. Let's not forget that. But nevertheless, he cares about the things that we are doing in our bodies. Notice that the deeds that are done in the body, including the words that we say, whether electronic or physical, will be part of that. So, that's the motivation that he gives, right? The reality of dying, the prospect of glorification, the guarantee of our arrival, the preference for heaven, and the inevitability of judgment. Now, in the last five minutes, let's close with some application. I want to I leave us um, on a hopeful gospel note here this morning because... What's instructive to us in this passage is the centrality of faith in all of this. Okay, I want you to look at verse 7. This is the one we've skipped on purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the essential element in living a life pleasing to God. Trusting Him. I learned it as a very young Christian. What does faith mean? For all, I trust him. For all, I trust him. F-A-I-T-H. Faith. So faith is the essential element in living a life pleasing to God. Now, three applications based on that observation. First of all, without faith, we can't please God. Now, I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Right? Romans, or Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Here's what our own confession says. Um, one of our confessions, the 1689, in chapter 16, verse, or paragraph 5, says this. We cannot, and he's talking about in our pre-conversion, non-Christian state. We cannot, even by our best works, merit or earn pardon of sin or eternal life from God's hand due to the huge disproportion between our works and the glory to come and the infinite distance between us and God. By these works, we can neither benefit God nor satisfy him for the debt of our former sins. When we have done all we can, 
when we've only done our duty and are unprofitable servants, since our good works are good, they must proceed from his spirit, and since they are performed by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot withstand the severity of God's punishment. Again, paragraph 7 of the same chapter. Works done by unregenerate people may in themselves be commanded by God and useful to themselves and others. Yet they do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word, nor with the right goal, the glory of God. Therefore they are sinful and cannot please God. They cannot disqualify anyone to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. See, that's, that's the prison that as an unbeliever we're locked in. We can't please God, and even as we try to please Him, if we give up, it's even more sinful. So our, our good works that are not done from faith are sin, but if we don't do them, we're even more sinful. See, that's the, that's the impetus that drives us to Christ. Like, I can't even do good apart from Christ. Amen. <laughs> you can't do good apart from Christ, but you can in Him. You can in Him which is the second point. By faith, we can please him. We can please him. Brothers and sisters, I want you to feel this and know this. Pleasing God is wonderfully possible. Some of us need to be reminded of this. We can think that it's a mark of spiritual sensitivity to think everything that we do is morally suspect. I'm just a filthy, doggone sinner. Nothing I do pleases God. And then we quote Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the context and free you from future mis- mis- misinterpretation and misunderstanding of that verse. Okay? Isaiah 64, 6 seems to say that even our best deeds are dirty and worthless. But in context, the righteous deeds that Isaiah has in mind are most likely the external perfunctory rituals that are offered by Israel without sincere faith. They're just doing their external duty. But there's no love for God. There's no heart. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 15. You glorify me with your lips, but your hearts are from, far from me. That's the, that's the filthy rags he's talking about. The righteous deeds were filthy rags because they weren't righteous deeds. They were external compliance that looked good on the outside, but was a smokescreen that masked an unbelieving heart. Also, the previous verse indicates that not every kind of righteous deed is a filthy rag before God. Isaiah 64, 5 says that God meets those who joyfully work righteousness. That is, those who remember God in their ways. So if you are striving after righteousness and seeking to serve God and remember Him in your ways and follow Him imperfectly, yes, that's not the, right, that's not the filthy rags he's talking about. In fact, righteousness is possible in the people of God, and therefore so is pleasing Him. Now, of course, the righteousness of Christ in our justification is the firm ground on which we stand, and we can never please God in our own strength. But empowered by His Spirit, we can and do please Him. Kevin DeYoung says, There is no righteousness that makes us right with God except for the righteousness of Christ. But for those who have been made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and therefore have been adopted into God's family, many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy in God's eyes, they're exceedingly sweet, precious, and pleasing to Him. Here's what our own confession says again. Chapter 16, verse 6. Nevertheless, believers are accepted through Christ, and thus their good works are also accepted in Him. 
This acceptance does not mean our good works are completely blameless and irreproachable in God's sight. Instead, God views them in His Son. And so He is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Brothers and sisters, we've gathered for worship that was imperfect and weak this morning. And God received it as a well-smelling offering in His nose. No matter how weak and imperfect and stumbling it was. Because we're in Christ. See, brothers and sisters, God's assessment of a believer's life is often far more gracious than the believer's assessment of his own. God's assessment of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 6 is that, quote, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Does that mean they never sinned? No, but he looked at their life and he said, they're righteous, they follow me all the time. God's assessment of Job was in Job chapter 1, verse 8, that he was a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God's assessment of David, listen to this, was, according to 1 Kings 15, 5, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That was God's assessment. Yeah, he blew it. He had a big, big, he blew it one time really big, but man, did I love that guy. <laughs> That's his assessment. God's assessment of good soil Christians in Luke eighteen fifteen is that they're bearing fruit out of an honest and good heart. You know, that's the way God sees your heart in Christ, honest and good, honest and good. God's assessment of Tabitha is that she was in Acts chapter 9, verse 36, full of good works and charity. Hezekiah was in the last statement concerning his life, identified as someone, in, according to 2 Kings 18, 5, that trusted the Lord, even though we know from 2 Chronicles 32, 25, that his pride seduced him and ruined him at a critical moment. See, God's assessment of a believer is far more gracious oftentimes than the believer's assessment of themselves. Two more, very quickly. If by faith we can please him, then we can also, by unbelief, displease him. Here's what Kevin DeYoung says again. Through faith, we are joined to Christ and have union with him. That bond is unbreakable. Our union with Christ is, is an established fact, guaranteed for all eternity by the indwelling of the Spirit. When we sin, our union with Christ is not in jeopardy, but our communion is. It is possible for believers to have more or less of God's favor. It's possible for us to have sweet fellowship with God, and it's possible to experience his frown. Not a frown of judgment, but a for-us frown that should spur us on to loving good deeds. As John Calvin said, God, while not ceasing to love his children, can still be wondrously angry toward them. God will never hate us, but he will mercifully frighten us with his discipline so that we might shake off our sluggishness. It's what any good father does. And finally, let me leave us with this encouragement. Be encouraged. Our God is easy to please. A.W. Tozer is right. He says, From a failure to properly understand God comes a world of unhappiness among good Christians even today. The Christian life is thought to be a glum, unrelieved, cross-carrying under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. He is austere, peevish, highly temperamental, and extremely hard to please. But this is no way to view the God of the Bible. Our God is not a capricious slave driver. He's not hypersensitive and prone to fits of rage at the slightest offense. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love.
He is our heavenly Father, brothers and sisters. In being that, is He less loving toward His children than we are? What sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains that the color scheme is all wrong? What kind of mother says to her son after he gladly cleaned the garage but put the paint cans on the wrong shelf, this is worthless in my sight? What sort of parent rolls their eyes when his child falls off the bike on the first try? Is God less of a parent than we are? No. In fact, much more so. Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Of which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who are asking? That's our God! That's our God, a good father who loves his children. Brothers and sisters, this week, let's make it our aim to please him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are good, that you're slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you for being a God who in Christ is easy to please. Outside of Christ... You cannot be pleased, but in Christ, you are easily pleased. We thank you, God, for all those among us this morning who are outside of Christ. May this reality, both of the severity of your judgment, but also the sweetness of your fatherhood, draw them to you. Draw them to you. You are not a stern taskmaster. You are a loving father who desires to bring us into your family. Adopt us, train us, teach us to live a life that's pleasing to you, both for our joy and for your glory. Lord, and for all of us who are in Christ this morning, remind us of the privilege and responsibility that is ours as children of God. Help us to make it our aim to please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.